voyant par chez nous, se sont fait rendez-vous. Ils sont réunis ensemble pour un voyage à entreprendre. Oh oui donc, faites vos sacs pour partir pour le Klondike. Quand le train est arrivé, le conducteur est débarqué. Il dit à nos voyageurs, embrassez-vous. Welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this episode, we're going to be looking at the second part, or almost the second half of White Fang. So I urge you to go back and listen to my first episode on, on White Fang uh, to get caught up to speed. But if you want to just start here, um, I in, in the first part, I focused mostly on the relationship between scarcity, the scarcity of resources, and its relationship with violence. And I, I think this is really the central theme of White Fang throughout, but we saw it go through different phases in the the history of of our major character White Fang. White Fang. Actually, the novel begins before White Fang is even born, and we see the struggles of his mother and father uh, to survive in in the Klondike, and we also see the struggle of of humans trying to make a living uh, uh, in the gold mining regions of of the Yukon of the Klondike trying to make a living there and this this becomes a struggle for survival and it's most brutal and violent the second part of the book looks at his upbringing the loss of his brothers and sisters the loss of his father and finally how his mother had to kill a lynx so that was the climax of the second part to kill a lynx to ensure the survival of her pup and in the third part White Fang is introduced to humanity and he becomes basically a servant of of a group of of humans, uh, a group of Indians. And so that that's more or less where um, the novel is at about the at about the halfway point. And in the second half of the novel, White Fang is going to be introduced to whites and uh, face new struggles, new types of violence in new contexts and then finally finishes the process of becoming domesticated and becoming ultimately a friendly neighborhood dog or mostly friendly. So this is how part four, the superior gods of White Fang begins. Had there been in White Fang's nature any possibility, no matter how remote, of his ever coming to fraternize with his kind, such possibility was irretrievably destroyed when he was made leader of the sled team. For now the dogs hated him, hated him for the extra meat bestowed upon him by Mitza, hated him for all the real and fancied favors he received, hated him for that he fled always at the head of the team, his wavering brush of a tail and his perpetually retreating hindquarters forever maddening their eyes. And White Fang was just as bitterly hated them back, being sled dog was anything but gratifying to him. To be compelled to run away before the yelling pack, every dog of which for three years he had thrashed and mastered, was almost more than he could endure. But endured he must, or perish, and the life that was in him had no desire to perish. The moment Mitza gave his orders for a start, that moment the whole team, with eager savage cries, sprang forward at White Frang. There was no defense for him. If he turned upon them, Mitza would throw the stinging lash of the whip into his face. Only remained for him to run away. He could not encounter that howling horde with his tail and hindquarters. These were scarcely fit weapons from which to meet the many merciless fangs. So run away he did violating his own nature and pride with every leap he made and leaping all day long. One cannot violate the promptings of one's nature without having that nature recoil upon itself. So this is the situation White Fang is in. He's been uh, 
lifted to be the head of the sled, but in doing so, he's become more increasingly isolated, although he never really had many friends among the dogs, the, the Indians' dogs. But all his relationships are based on violence. And I think this is an important thing that London is doing in this novel. Yes, the natural world described in the opening chapters is violent. The scarcity is brutal. The famines are regular and common, and everyone experiences them. And that results in really a survival of the fittest kind of situation. Like during a famine, all of White Fang's brothers and sisters out of, out of a litter of five die, and he's the only survivor. So that's all real. But it's not that once he enters civilization, things get better. In many ways, the violence gets worse and more, in some ways, more meaningless. And certainly the worst violence that White Fang endures is at the hands of white people and while owned by white people. Or not just white people, but Indians too. But it even gets worse when it gets owned by white people, which we'll come to in this part four. So part four is called The Superior Gods violence and superior gods and it's made up of six chapters and in this section i i would almost want to subtitle this violence as a way of life right we've got we've seen violence as a result of scarcity in the earlier parts of the novel right and we've seen violence under the surface of even civilized life in part four violence becomes all that white fang is about it's really he, he becomes a, a monster essentially at this point these these chapters, these six chapters in part four, cover the maturity of White Fang. Although domesticated, violence has become simply a part of his life. He arrives at Fort Yukon, and White Fang kills the quote-unquote white man's dogs and is eventually purchased by Beauty Smith. Uh, he actually tricks his Indian owner by getting him drunk and using that to get him to buy the dog. And he's used not for running sleds, but rather for dog fighting, for the entertainment of white people. He becomes essentially a gladiator. White Fang has entered the world of the Hunger Games, where his job is to do battle with other dogs for the pleasure and profit of the humans. A lifetime of scarcity, the law of meat, the discipline he faced, both as as part of a group of dogs in the in a kind of a sled team and as leader of a sled team, and the profit that the people get from owning him all of this transforms white fang into a brute and nowhere is that made more clear than in the chapter the chapters about his time as essentially a gladiator he is deemed untrainable but his violence is that is in a sense tamed by those in control to their benefit quote under the tutelage of the mad god and that's that's um, beauty smith under the tutelage of the mad god white fang became a fiend he was kept changed at the pen at the rear of the fort, and here Beauty Smith teased him and irritated and drove him wild with petty torments. The man early discovered White Fang's susceptibility to laughter and made it a point, after painfully tricking him, to laugh at him. At such times, reason fled from White Fang, and in his transports of rage, he was even more mad than Beauty Smith. Okay, so the chapters of this. The, the first chapter is called The Enemy of His Kind, and this is the beginning of the low point for White Fang during his period of work and life with the humans. White Fang, in, in some ways, has become worse than a wolf, worse than a dog. He's become, he's been, or at least Jack London here described him as totally brutal. brutal. Quote, so he became the enemy of his kind, domesticated wolves that they were, softened by the fires of man, weakened in the sheltering shadow of man's strength. White Fang was bitter and implacable. The clay of him was so molded, he declared a vendetta against all dogs. And so terrible did he live his vendetta, that gray beaver, fierce savage that he was, 
could not but marvel at White Fang's ferocity. So after four years with the humans, and he's spending, at this point he spent most of his life with the humans. It's only really his first year of his life that he was able to spend with his mother, Keech, uh, in the wild. But through this time, White Fang has risen up through this application of violence against other dogs, by beating other dogs, by dominating them. He's risen up. And what does he get out of this? He gets a little bit extra meat. He gets a little bit extra meat. But he loses all community. He loses all family. He loses any chance to mate. He loses any friendships he would develop. He's capable of these things. We know by the end of the novel that he's capable of all these things. But these are all deprived uh, from him for profit. So the he arrives at Fort Yukon in this chapter, and Gray Beaver is hoping to profit from the gold rush. This has increasingly impacted his world. And we are reminded just how much the revival of whites has transformed the economy and society of the Indians. And although this is a book about animals, and particularly about wolves, there's another level of analysis being given here about the relationship between the whites and the Indians in the Klondike and how the gold rush affected the Indians. It's talked about a lot in his stories, his Klondike stories, which we'll be looking at probably in a couple weeks. Um, so we'll do this, we'll do Sea Wolf, and then we'll come back and look at all the stories collected in this volume. Um, but in, in the stories of the Klondike, there's a lot on this theme of how the Indians have been, how their society has been disrupted by the arrival of whites. And we got a little hint of it here. Um, in fact, there's an, e there's an episode coming up very shortly when basically White Fang is stolen um, from, from his owner. White Fang's first impression of, of whites is impressive. Um, he, he compared the Indians as, as he had known. They were to him another race of beings, a race of superior gods. They impressed him as possessing superior power, and it's the power that gods had rest. White Fang did not reason it out, did not in his mind make the sharp generalizations that the white gods were more powerful. It was a feeling, nothing more and nothing less potent. This is probably London at his most clearly racist. He does call the Indians gods from White Fang's point of view, but the whites become the superior gods. And here it's just presented as something that's he feels, he, he just knows deep down. So, But in other parts of the novel, he doesn't really stick through this idea. The reason that White Fang experiences and realizes the whites are more powerful and superior has to do with technology. And he talks about the, you know, he's impressed by the buildings. The buildings get larger. For instance, the, their ability to inflict pain increases. So it's, it's more of a technological thing, even though here it's mentioned just briefly as more of an emotional thing. In, in, at, in the larger context of the novel, it's technology that so impresses White Fang. He finds when he goes to the camp that he can dominate white people's dogs, which are weaker than the ones, than ones he faced with living with the Indians. But knowing little else to do, it's all he really knows, White Fang simply fights the white men's dogs. Okay, chapter two, The Mad God. We meet uh, next the, the human that'll have the, a big factor in White Fang's life. Maybe um, this, in some ways, I guess we'd rank him third in the most importance uh, of the humans that he's owned by. But it's a, it's a short period of his life, but it's an incredibly brutal, formative point of his life. It's really corresponding to the, the, the lowest point in White Fang's life. And this person is Beauty Smith. He's a bit like White Fang in that he's despised and feared by other people and hated and known as being brutal 
and kind of a little bit of a loner and a, quite a bit isolated because of the way he treats people. In fact, London here writes that Beauty Smith was a monstrosity and the blame of it lay elsewhere. He was not responsible. The clay of him had been so molded in the making. He did the cooking for the other men at the fort, the dishwashing and the drudgery. They did not despise him. Rather, they did tolerate him in a broad human way as one tolerates any creature evilly treated in the making. So he eventually buys White Fang from Grey Beaver. He, he's impressed by White Fang and he Grave Beaver initially says, I'm not going to sell my dog or my wolf, but he gets Grave Beaver drunk. And here we get another shout out to the impact of, that White's had on Indian culture, um, basically using alcohol to rob him of his animal. And then he, owning him, he tries to discipline and train White Fang. We're reminded here, of course, of the law of the club introduced in the novel, The Call of the Wild. Um, in fact, this book is even more violent. I'm Every time I read this, I'm struck by just how violent this, this novel is. It's, it's one of the most violent novels, in fact, I've ever read. Um, but both for dogs, um, civilized and wild, the law of the club is used to bring them into discipline under this capitalist regime of the whites in the Yukon. And he actually compares, this is on page 213 of the Library of America version of this, but he actually compares it to, to Grey Beaver. Grey Beaver uh, had different weapons, different tools, um, but the club and the whip are introduced in this chapter, and these are like new technologies of violence. By the end of this chapter, this violence is working, and White Fang realizes that he must submit to the will of his new master, obey his every whim and fancy. That's a direct quote from the end of this chapter. Chapter 3 is called The Reign of Hate. In this one, Beauty Smith begins fighting White Fang in arena-style gladiatorial matches for profit and for the entertainment of the white gold miners. White Fang becomes known as the Fighting Wolf. This is uh, kind of his second name, his first name being White Fang. or the, He's first the Grey Cub, I guess, and then he's White Fang with the Indians, but now among humans he becomes the Fighting Wolf. And he becomes a sensation among the whites of the Yukon. But unfortunately, he's so successful that his fame declines because no one really wants to watch these one-sided fights. His experience as a fighter eventually makes him an unstoppable monster in, in the, these arenas. And they start to then have him fight wolves uh, to keep it interesting. Okay, chapter four, The Clinging Death. This chapter is really just a long description of just one of these fights, and it's the mo one of the most epic ones that White Fang experiences. It's the one that almost kills him. It's a bulldog named Cherokee, and it's mostly because of Cherokee's shape. He's not familiar with this kind of animal. He's used to fighting like other kinds of creatures. And then it's that lack of fur that made it really difficult for him to use his standard tactics of like pulling on fur and grabbing hold of it. So just basically the type of dog that the bulldog was made it difficult for him to win. And eventually White Fang is almost killed by this bulldog. Beauty Smith then kind of jumps into the fight and starts beating White Fang and it's not really clear to me whether he's trying to save White Fang from being killed at the last moment he doesn't want to lose his investment or he's angry just angry at him um, but so before before this dog Cherokee can finish him off uh, Beauty Smith gets involved in this and at this point a white man named Whedon Scott breaks up the fight Whedon is morally outraged at the treatment of the dogs and demands that Beauty Smith take his money for White Fang. And so he I can't, basically hands him a bunch of money and says, I'm buying this dog, this wolf from you, and there's nothing you can do about it. And Beauty Smith is forced to accept this. This 
by my kind of measurement, is the first time morality enters into this story at all. So we're we're like four-fifths of the way through this novel, and we finally get morality. And it's Whedon making a moral judgment about the treatment of a dog of a, or a wolf. And that, I think, is telling, because so much of this novel is about the violence inherent in nature and in institutions. And even when you get to civilization, you think, well, then there's going to be morality there. There's going to be a kind of an ethical code. And it's not there, at least not in the way these human beings treat these animals. Chapter five is called The Indomitable. And here we have Scott, Whedon Scott, and his friend Matt discussing what to do with White Fang. They agree that he'll be nearly impossible to tame, but they also think he's, quote unquote, too smart to kill. And they really are, are kind of in a bind of what to do about him. But most interestingly, Whedon does not seem, or White Fang does not seem to totally trust Whedon. Uh, Whedon's being kind to him and caring for him and not being violent. It's like the first time in his life he hasn't experienced this external violence from others. And London writes, White Fang was suspicious. Something was impending. He had killed this god's dog, bitten his companion god, and what else was he to be expected than some terrible punishment? But in the face of it, he was indomitable. He brisked and showed his teeth, his eyes vigilant, his whole body wearing and prepared for everything. The god had no club, so he suffered him to approach quite near. The god's hand had come out and was descending upon his head. White Fang shrank together and grew tense as he crouched under it. Here was danger, some treachery or something. He knew the hands of the gods, their proved mastery, their cunning to hurt. Besides, there was his old antipathy to be touched. So as part four closes, it's a chapter called The Love Master. And as his title suggests, the chapter is going to be about the growing love between Whedon and White Fang. He uses a training process that uses love to bring him towards peace and to try to tone down his violence. So instead of using the law of the club, he uses friendship and he pets him and basically, you know, trains him to, you know, using kindness. And we also see here the pronounced death of White Fang, not not the dog, not the actual entity, not the creature white, that, that we're calling White Fang, but this kind of brutal, monstrous animal. Uh, that kind of merger of the wild and he I think the language London even uses here is that he does die yeah or it was the beginning of the end for White Fang the ending of an old life and the reign of hate a new incomprehensibly fair life was dawning it required much thinking and endless patience on the part of Whedon Scott to accomplish this and on this part of White Fang it required nothing less than a revolution he had to ignore the urges and promptings of instinct and reason defy experience and give the lie to life itself so this is a big change. Um, the first sign of his accepting the love of his master is that White Fang begins to allow himself to be petted because it's something he didn't like. He didn't like being laughed at and he didn't like being touched. And that begins to change. And at the end of this chapter, it seems that Beauty Smith tries to steal White Fang, but White Fang fights back, defeating his former master. So it's partially, yeah, Weed and Scott bought him, but by basically attacking Beauty Smith, he's declaring a bit of an independence. So it becomes a much more personal uh, change of ownership. It's not just about the commercial aspect anymore. It's, it's really that he chooses to be with uh, this new master. And so this brings us to the final uh, part of, of the book, part five, The Tame. And here we're, we're going to be, this is set in California mostly. And here we see, we still have violence, but it's violence on the surface. And it's a violence hidden 
um, by other things, most importantly law. So White Fang spends the last part of this novel under the ownership of a new master who treats him well and takes him to the California cities and then takes him to a ranch where he was going to live with his his father. So it's Whedon Scott and his father, Judge Scott. There he learns to control his violence, although he still kills kitchen, chick, chickens and uses threats and violence to defend himself from other dogs. And in the end, he meets Kali and has children of his own. They will not be raised in the wild. They'll be not likely experience scarcity. They'll likely live just a relatively happy lives of, of dogs, unless they end up like Buck and get stolen away. But it doesn't seem that's what's going to happen. It seems that they are going to experience a life without scarcity. Now, I'm, you know, we, we don't really know what happens in the next generation uh, in this, in you know, especially in this model of scarcity and violence. But what's important to remember here is that there is still violence in this chapter. It doesn't go away entirely. And it's 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 what he does here is very, very interesting. Now, the lesson of White Fang throughout all five parts is the violence of the law of want of profit. And we actually have all three mentioned here. We haven't gotten to the law yet, but it's in this part five. But in the beginning part, it's want, it's scarcity. And then in the middle parts of the novel, it's profit. And in the last part, it's it's the law, which covers up and and makes hazy the reality of violence. Our own violence, whether against the system or each other or against our tormentors, you know, can be understood, I think, in some more context. A lot of the violence in our world comes either out of the application of law and state power, uh, the violence that just comes out of people being desperate, not having enough to survive, or indifference caused by the drive for profit. I mean, I guess there's evil, too, but that's not something Jack London's really interested in. He doesn't talk about evil at all here. So let's set that aside and, and focus on, you know, most of our violence comes from these, these causes. Now, as tame as most of us would like to be, you know, for we, like Light, White Fang, often are simmering in anger, and White Fang, even as he becomes tame, never completely gives up his anger. You know, it's, you know, ultimately, though, People are going to take what they need to survive. And imposed scarcity is going to contribute to violence. Not, you know, that's violence itself. You know, so when scarcity is created when it's not necessary, right? When we have homeless people and empty buildings in cities, you know, more than enough empty buildings to house all the homeless. That's, that's an act of violence. It seems to me anyways, uh, caused by scarcity. And that's going to cause more violence. Um, for as those people strike out, lash out, often not against their, their true oppressors, but often just lash around the other people they can get at, you know, like, anyways, let's get into this. Um, so this section is five chapters, I think. Yeah, f five chapters. Uh, the first one is called The Long Trail. And this is just about the men preparing to return to California and discussing why they can't take White Fang with them. He's simply not tame enough. They, they, they decide they'll have to leave him behind and he'll just become a wolf again, join a wolf pack or something. But White Fang actually refuses to accept this and he boards the steamer and makes this choice. So this is the moment in which he, he kind of is given his freedom but instead chooses to go along with Whedon Scott. Chapter two, the Southland. So they land in San Francisco and White Fang gets to see the homeland of the gods he has come to love and respect. Now, this might be partially a bit of London's argument about progress 
of civilization. He does. He is a social Darwinist at the end of the day. He does believe in social progress, and that's what Iron Heel is about, largely about the potential and the possibility of social progress. And you know, the evidence of this, and especially the way the the difference between like the just the gods of the wild and the superior gods are compared in this novel. It's often about their technology, their ability to, to build things. And White Fang is often just impressed with the size of, of buildings here. And he, what he writes about White Fang's observations in San Francisco is, All of this was the manifestation of power. Through it all, behind it all, was man governing and controlling, expressing himself as, the, as of old by his mastery over matter. It was colossal, stunning. White Fang was awed. Fear sat upon him. As in his cubhood, he had been made to feel the smallness and puniness on the day that he came in from the wild to the villages of Grey Beaver. So now, in his fully grown statue and pride of strength, he was made to feel small and puny. And there were so many gods, he was dizzy by the swarming of them. So the city is in many ways though a nightmare for White Fang, who can't understand much of what's going on. So he's a bit out of sorts, as anyone would be who doesn't really know what cities are and entering one. So he's taken to Judge Scott's place, which is out kind of out, you know, in the countryside, living away from the city. There he meets a sheepdog named Kali. It's a, you know, it's not a very original name for a, a sheepdog. I'm just presuming it is a Kali. They don't get along at first, but eventually she'll become his mate. Um, but he still shows brutality and he almost kills a hound. So there's still the suggestion that he can't really be tamed. Chapter 3 is called The God's Domain. This is a fairly lengthy chapter about, um, about his time kind of on this ranch. No dog is able to defeat White Fang, but he is eventually taken down by Kali early in this chapter. Not, not physically or violently, but he's just disarmed and doesn't really know what to make of this dog. He starts to tame as he begins to allow the children to pet him. And there's a couple children on the ranch too. He learns other lessons of civilized life, such as the different way to treat his masters or his master's servants. He starts to be able to make these distinctions like this guy's my master and these are just the, like the servants of the master. I don't have to treat them the same way or they're going to treat me differently. So he starts to make these distinctions, learning about class, essentially, something he never really experienced before. Maybe that's a kind of a luxury of, of rich societies to have those kinds of distinctions. White Fang is still wild, and this is revealed in the fact that he's still killing chickens. And the Scots fight about what to do with this. The judge thinks you can't cure a chicken-killing dog. This is like, like when the shark tastes human blood or something. It's, it can't go back the other way. But Weed and Scott still thinks he can be trained and tamed. But he also gets in fights with dogs still. Violence thus remains under the surface. It's kind of this, the, his nat nature and what he's learned through the brutality of his life in the Yukon among humans, you know, is never far from it. And it, it's, it seems like being tamed is just like a surface coating or, or a facade. Chapter four, the call of kind. Um, we're actually in the start of this chapter, we're reminded of the theme of scarcity. And so Jack London reminds us right here of, of scarcity. Quote, the months came and went. There was plenty of food and no work in the Southland, and White Fang lived fat and prosperous and happy. Not alone was he in the geographical Southland, for he was in the Southland of life. Human kindness was like a sun shining upon him, and he flower flourished like a flower planted in good soil. What's being associated here is post-scarcity and 
and not having to work, right? And I think a lot of the people who are optimistic about autom automation and universal basic income, and I I've talked about that in other parts of, of this podcast, but the people who are optimistic about it have this sort of vision of the future for us that will be liberated from work and there'll be plenty of stuff because the machines will make it all that will create kind of a situation where we're all kind of like white fang here. Happy, relaxed, able to pursue our own interests, focus on our relationships. And that's really where being tame is what being tame is about. It's about his relationships with people. It's about you know his relationship with his masters, his relationship with the Kali, with Kali, and his you know, his relationship with the pups he eventually is going to have. Pleasure enters his life a lot more too. He builds this relationship with Kali, his future mate, and he also plays much more. And at the end of this chapter, we get a nice little description of some of this play. I always think historians and scholars don't focus enough on, on just play and pleasure, especially in my, you know, in the humanities, you know, there's always this question about how do you justify uh, like a history degree or a literature degree and, and this. And whenever people want to make fun of or, or say we shouldn't try to forgive student loans or alleviate that, they'll say, well, you shouldn't have gotten a degree in blah, blah, blah studies or something, gender studies or something. But, you know, a reason people sometimes do that, and I don't think we admit this enough, and we're, we're scared to admit this openly. So we always try to say, well, there's a utility here or it can get you into pre-law or we'll make up some excuse. I think we should be able to stand up and say, I do this because it gives me pleasure and pleasure is a valuable goal in life. So I think we can be a little bit hedonist here. And I think that's good. That's a sign of social progress. If we can spend more of our time and effort in pleasure and happiness and you know that means we're improving as society who wants to go back to the you know eight hour work week or something ridiculous like that so here's a description at the end of chapter four of part five one day she led him off on a long chase through the back pasture and into the woods it was the afternoon that the master was to ride and white fang knew it the horse stood saddled and waited in the door white fang hesitated but there was also in him deeper than all the laws he had learned that the customs that had molded him, that his love for his master, that the very will to live in himself, and when, in the moment of indecision, Kali nipped him and scampered off, he turned and followed after. The master rode along that day, and in the woods side by side, White Fang rang along with Kali, as his mother, Kish, and old One-Eye had run along years before in the silent Northland forest. There's a, there's a couple important points here. Like One is Kali nips him, which back in the Yukon would have led to a fight, right? Because he hated being touched, but here he lets another dog nip at him but you just feel this 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 happiness he's experiencing and that he hadn't felt since he was a puppy with when both of his parents were, were still alive so we get to the final chapter then um the sleeping wolf and here we can finally talk about law it's only the last five pages of the book but i think it's an important theme as the title of this chapter chapter suggests white fang's violence will always remain under the surface a man named Jim Hall breaks free of prison, and he wants to get revenge on the judge who put him in jail, and that's Judge Scott. And here we have this issue of law and violence. Societies inflict violence on, on certain people, criminals, people deemed criminals, addicts, vagabonds, vagrants, you know, through the law. That's how societies inflict violence, to the point of killing them, right? If you know, if you haven't seen it yet, I urge you to watch or read the book Paths of Glory, which is really about this, how most the most cruel and indifferent and, and viciousness can be explained away as law or, or policy. And I, I've done this a lot in 
my podcast, especially in the Philip Dick podcast, and, and mention this. You know how often we turn our back on violence things as long as all the all the uh, I's are dotted and the T's are crossed. Now Jim Hall seems to see this. You know, he was innocent of the crime for he was sentenced. It was a case in the parlance of thieves and police of railroading. Jim Hall was being railroaded to prison for a crime he had not committed. Because of the two prior convictions against him, Judge Scott imposed on him a sentence of 50 years. Judge Scott did not know all the things, and he did not know that he was a party to a police conspiracy, and the evidence was hatched and perjured, that Jim Hall was guiltless of the crime charge, and Jim Hall, on the other hand, did not know that Judge Scott was merely ignorant. Jim Hall believed that the judge knew all about it and was hand-in-glove with the police in the perpetuation of this monstrous injustice. Jack London here makes it clear that he thinks the imprisonment of Jim Hall was unjust. Right now, Jim Hall doesn't survive this chapter because he does, you know, try to kill, you know, White Fang's master. Yet it's um, it's pointed out here that the law is hypocritical and the law is not just often. And, you know, of course, Jack London spent time in jail and he talks a lot about this, about this in the road and the way the criminal justice system is used to basically take advantage of, of the working poor. So anyways, Jim Hall comes to the ranch intent to get his revenge on Judge Scott and White Fang kills the criminal. Symbolically, what happens here is that the violence of nature overpowers the violence of the state. Despite the taming of White Fang, the brutal violence of life is always under the surface. Yet White Fang gets a new name, his third name or fourth name, depending on how you count it, of the book. That's the Blessed Wolf. And this is kind of the symbolic moment when he's when he's tamed, but he, it's it's still his violence is still there, and it still can be applied, and it's still this kind of this brutal law of nature is never far into the surface. So I think that's partially what Jack London's point is: is that like the fragility of civilization. Now, I've been focusing on the theme of violence and scarcity, and and how you know, and the way violence is worked out in each each part of the book. And I think each po- each of the five sections has a coherent argument about violence and its relationship to scarcity. What does this novel say about J-Lo's vi- views of, of civilization? That's a question I think we can have. I, certainly the line between civilization and nature is not far. He seems to doubt its moral superiority at times, and that's why he threw in, and like almost the final page of, of the book or the final pages, this criticism of the legal system. So he does have doubts of its moral superiority. What it is that tames White Fang is love and kindness. It's not civilization. In fact, you could, you know, he's been in civilization since the third part for most of the novel. It's just it was it's it was horrible. So there's nothing magic about civilization that takes away violence or makes us benevolent and kind. It all just gets exported to other societies or it becomes systematized or it just becomes part of doing business it gets hidden up by law so I think that is the argument of White Fang I think that's where it's really radical potential is you know not just a, the inverse of Call of the Wild not just a, a book about a, a wolf that becomes a dog it's it's a much more profound argument about our the whole the world we live in so you know, at this point, it's almost redundant to go into the themes, but I, I mentioned some anyway. So, um, as always, when I finish looking at a book, I like to list some of the major themes uh, so we can kind of index these works and cross-reference them. 
I'm especially interested in where different writers kind of start to explore the same theme from different points of view. Uh, the first one is, of course, nature, uh, nature's laws. It runs throughout the whole book. You know, it's, it's really a thread that's on every page is the laws of nature. And connected to that, of course, is social Darwinism and Darwinism in general. Those, of course, are distinct. I'm not lumping them together. Darwin is um, a theory of biology. Social Darwinism is a sociological theory that sees social progress tied to survival of the fittest within social relations either individual or group and we'll come back to that certainly with the sea wolf where it's it's worked out kind of line by line at one point uh the relationship between humans and animals is an important theme here and i want to mention a book i i don't do that often like a non-fiction book a book of scholarship uh, i really do think it's worthy of a, of a of a large audience because it's a it's a quite powerful tale or story it's called vicious wolves and men in america and it's by john t coleman and it's it's probably my favorite work of environmental history and it, it won a bunch of awards here western history association's prize the american historical association's john h dunning prize so um you know the he's a professor he was a professor at notre dame i don't know where he is now but it was published in 2004 so it's it's, it's been around for a while i actually got it i think when i was I was at a grant in Washington back in like 2008 or 9, and I found this at like a used bookstore, and I picked it up. So it's it's a really wonderful book, and it talks about why, it asks this question like, why have human beings, and especially Americans, been so brutal to wolves? I mean, they were almost driven to extinction, and even to this, this day, there's only a few places in the United States where you actually have gray wolves anymore. Uh, I think in Wisconsin, they've just been reintroduced, and now there's talk about bringing back hunting season for wolves. Certainly, the reason for this violence has a lot to do with the relationship between, you know, about agriculture, right? Because they seem to prey on the animals that humans rely on for their, for their farm, you know, their farm animals. And this might be why you had a very different relationship in, with Native Americans and wolves, because until Europeans came, there weren't the large mammals that wolves would have preyed on at least not domesticated ones right so and then say wolves and humans had more in common because they both hunted like the buffalo maybe but with white men when white people came they brought with them like sheep and pigs and all these things that that wolves would go after and that's part of the conflict but the book's called vicious and it really focuses on just how over the top the violence human violence towards wolves became um and it's really you know we can't use the word genocide it's it's almost a specious version of of genocide where there's just like this mad desire to just wipe out in fact it was a policy of the united states for a while and he talks about all this it's not a very long book probably it's just 200 pages or so and it covers all of american history but it's really focused on this this theme of the relationship between uh, wolves and humans and it's it's eye-opening and just when you when we see just how nasty humans were towards wolves i mean they're not just killing them to protect their farms but torturing them there's examples here of people like sewing wolves penises shut after capturing them and letting them off into the wild so they would die really slow and miserable death uh, some really horrible stuff but in general this theme of the relationship between humans and animals which is key to our environmental history it's described really well in this book and I, I think we have different examples of relationships through the different masters that white fang had 
another theme, law and justice. I just sort of talked about this with the final part. You know, law is just a cover up of, of the violence of the system. The impact of whites on Native Americans, just kind of the Native American experience interacting with whites is another theme we can look at here. It's not really detailed too much. Jack London does do that in his, uh, some of his short stories um, a little bit more, and he does it in the Pacific too. But this is, it's not a positive um, relationship, certainly. Now, individuals wanted to profit from it, and, they, and some of them certainly did, but by and large, it seemed to be a devastating relationship. We have the gold rush as a theme, and tied to that, of course, is capitalism. And both of these lead to a lot of the exploitation and violence we experience and read about in this novel. Alcohol is a small theme. It's nowhere near the, like as big a theme as it is in maybe Martin Eden or certainly not in John Barleycorn. But alcohol is mentioned here from time to time as part of the male experience. And it's used as a way to exploit an Indian in one very important scene in the, in the second half of the novel. And then finally, and this maybe ties to social Darwinism, but uh, the family hereditary characteristics. Right, so we got the characteristics that White Fang gets from the she wolf um, and from his, his father. We have um, the character, you know, the we have the like uh, Gray Beaver and his son Mitza. We see the passage on of certain traditions and, and customs there. Um, what's his name? Beauty Smith is presented as having bad characteristics because of how he was raised or he was just kind of born that way there's a lot of characters here who are sort of born a certain way uh, and so the, he seems to have this idea of hereditary characteristics um, the only time you really see a lot of divergence between the attitudes within a family is the relationship between judge scott and and whedon scott so whedon scott's kind of pro white fang and judge scott's more skeptical you know at least until in the end when he saves his life but there you have some tension. But by and large, it's like like father like son, is, is here or like mother like like son in the case of White Fang and the She Wolf. So that does it for White Fang. Wow, I got. So I, I've said a lot about this book. It's really worth reading. I like it more than The Call of the Wild. Actually, I, I think I understand why The Call of the Wild gets read so much it's shorter it's it's a little bit tighter narratively it's it's less violent so it's it's more acceptable for kids even though that is violence too it's not nearly as violent as as white fang but i i prefer this one i think this one touches me more because it it really complicates this transition i mean white uh call of the wild is more you got civilization here and, and then nature and it's something you phase into here the line between nature and civilization is very fuzzy. It's not clear at all. I mean, even in the last chapter, you have these intensely violent acts. Um, if it was just a story about him being tamed, you wouldn't have had that. You wouldn't have been constantly reminded in the final pages of the book that White Fang is still just, you know, a, a wolf in dog's clothing almost. And where does that violence come from? Well, it comes through his experiences. It comes from nature, but it also comes from you know, a half a decade of, of some of the most brutal exploitation you can imagine. And as bad as we are to people, I think I said this in previous episodes, as bad as we are with people, we're worse to animals. And that's that's something we have to face. Whatever your feelings are on animal rights, it, you know, it seems to me that this it's it's got to be a moral question. I don't see how you not explore morally. I mean, there might be principled arguments for like meat eating that 
might be ethical, but at least it has to be addressed, right? You can't just ignore it, as, as most people do. Now, I'm not, you know, I think Jack London certainly has sympathy for for the animals here. Um, I don't know how far he goes with it. Like, he's, he doesn't ever come out really as an animal rights activist, but he does seem to have some sympathy for animals. And, you know, I wonder how he treated the, his own, the own animals in his life. Should look at a biography and see what they say. Anyways, I really like this book. Um, I, I hope I wish it got read a little bit more. Um, it's not my favorite of Jack London's books, but it's up there. So what what's going to come up next? Well, what's going to be next is is uh, Sea Wolf. I'm going to skip a little bit because the Library of America volume has Call of the Wild, White Fang, then twelve Klondike stories, then the Sea Wolf, and then thirteen other stories and they're mostly his urban stories and his Pacific Island stories so it's, I, I want to do all the stories together so I'm going to jump and finish up with the sea wolf which will be the final Jack London novel we're going to look at um, it's going to be three episodes what I'm going to do with that is each episode I'm going to focus on one character um, then I'm going to look at the 25 stories and we'll probably do like six or seven in an episode so it'll be like four episodes so we still got you know, seven episodes um, before we're done with Jack London. So there's a lot more J-Lo coming up. Um, but until then, thank you so much for listening. It's I've been having a lot of fun with this Jack London series. I hope you've been enjoying it too. Leave your comments uh, below, or if you haven't yet, please subscribe to my podcast or check out the Philip K. Dick Book Club if you're interested in science fiction. Uh, I've been having a lot of fun with that, kind of uh, accompanying me, accompanying, you know, partner podcast so uh yeah again thanks for listening i'll see you next time Il y en avait un autre parmi eux qui a passé pour un quiqueux. Comme il était pas habile pour prendre les chars à full steam, tombant pleine face sur la traque, il a pas pu se rendre au Klondike.